mafia. Am I in the what? Whatever you want to call it, organized crime. That's total crap. Who told you that? Dad, I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at three in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at three in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a 45 automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs? Getting coffee and placing his phone calls. You may not realize it, but you are making contacts. It's an entry level job. So fuck up. Right. Focus on the good times. Don't be sarcastic. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. Oh, I went ahead and ordered something for the table. to another edition of the Retro Room. Yes, those were scenes from The Sopranos and along with The Sopranos theme song to represent 20 years since the first Sopranos aired back in 1999. And we're going to talk to one of the experts. That's TV critic Alan Sepinwall. He formerly of The Star Ledger. Yes, Tony Soprano's hometown paper. He covered The Sopranos for the last three years of the series. Co-wrote a book recently called The Sopranos Sessions, which has a real guide to every episode along with interviews with James Gandolfini and creator David Chase. You heard some scenes from some of the more notable moments in the show, along with the iconic opening theme music. We're going to talk to him in a moment, but first, of course, I want to remind you that my book is out. That's Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. That's at Willow Street Press through Amazon.com and any other favorite bookstores or websites. Order it today. And, of course, don't forget our sponsor, Jiminy's. Jiminy's dog treats are delicious and nutritious and use cricket protein. It's better than beef or chicken because it's sustainable and better for the environment. Check them out at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. Now let's talk to Alan Sepinwall right now. Alan, are you there? I'm here. Good to talk to you. Of course, we're talking to Alan Sepinwall. He is now chief TV critic at Rolling Stone magazine, and that would also mean RollingStone.com. But for many years, the TV critic, or one of them, at the Star Ledger in New Jersey, which I am also a New Jersey man, so we got two Jersey boys here talking Sopranos. What could go wrong there? And, of course, your new book is out, The Sopranos Sessions, that you wrote with the other Star Ledger critic at the time of The Sopranos run, Matt Zoller-Seitz. Am I saying his name right? You are. That would be a first, right? This is a great book. This is not just a book to read about The Sopranos as a, as a fan or as someone who wants to remember the great times, but it's a real go-to encyclopedia with information on every episode, and then you have a great long interview with David Chase in the back, and plenty of insight and comment and review. And I'm a reader of the Star Ledger, and actually a former delivery boy, 
but we won't go there. <laughs> wow. But it's interesting because I did not see the first season and about season and a half when it was on the air. So I've been rewatching and I'm up to about the end of season two. So I'm basically caught up to the ones I missed. But do you think I'm going to stop now? Of course not. I saw every episode from then on and I'm just going to watch them again because it is such a gripping, interesting show. And I also have the aid of years of review and reading your book and getting some of the background insight. But I think I want to ask, obviously, this is the 10th, I'm sorry, 20th anniversary. It was on January 10th, 1999, that the first Sopranos episode aired. And w- what was it about that first episode and the first creation, do you think, that really drew the series away from the average show? Or did it right away? Did it take a time to, to catch it an audience? It really wasn't until after the fifth episode, College, the one where Tony takes Meadow right. up to New Hampshire to look at schools and he strangles the informant, that's when people really started talking about it. The first four episodes are good. I think the pilots are one of the great pilots ever made. But there was still, you know, you could see it in both the reviews of the show, which were based off the first three or four episodes, if I'm remembering right, and just the public reaction. There was still sort of a wariness, a concern, you know, the advertisements for Analyze This were all over TV and movie theaters at that point. So people weren't 100% sure, like, is this a comedy? How much are we supposed to laugh? How seriously are we supposed to take it? And you didn't hear a lot of people talking about it outside of, like, hardcore TV fan circles. And then all of a sudden, the day after, the week after college aired, I started hearing about it everywhere. And, of course, that episode you're talking about, he's trying to be the dutiful father and on the side, learning where this informant is and eventually going and, and killing him with his bare hands, which seemed to be a real mark of this show, that you had real brutal murders, real thuggish behavior. It wasn't the Godfather with kind of the dramatic uh, Hollywood-type uh, drama and almost old-fashioned honor system and loyalty system. Goodfellas brought us into this a little bit with the way it operated because it was a little more street thuggish. And But this was a TV show, and it was an HBO show. How how much did that kind of take a while for people to get used to, or did they just sort of take advantage right away? It was There was nothing like this before, and there was really no show like this where you had the HBO sensibility, you could use profanity, nudity, and he also created the shorter season. His seasons were only, what, 12, 13, 14 episodes? That hadn't really been done before either, right? Well, I mean, HBO had had Oz, which debuted right. two years earlier, the prison drama, and that was never a hit on the scale of The Sopranos, was it? It was successful enough to last, I think, six seasons. And that had sort of, you know, a whole prison full of ruthless people. But at the same time, some of the main characters of the show were the prison staff. You know, the warden, the guy running the thing. So there was still a degree of compromise, a degree of, we're going to give you some point of view characters here who you can relate to. Even some of the prisoners were there so the audience could identify with and the Sopranos had that, too, in that they, you know, Tony's life exists in the suburbs. He goes to stores you've heard of. He has problems with his kids, with his wife that are relatable in one way or another. But there was no good guy character on the show. The closest there was was Melfi, and she was not really heavily involved in the plot, and even she was compromised by the fact that she enjoyed Tony's company. So it was the first show where you're really going in, and there's no one where you can say, oh, that's the good guy. You know, I'm enjoying the J.R. Ewing or whoever, but ultimately, like, I know that good will prevail because that's the morality that television has taught us. This was, no, you're going to root for the bad guy because there's really nobody else. And tell people who may not be aware how this came about. Now, David Chase had a history of TV. He was a writer. I remember he did a lot of episodes of The Rockford Files, which I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember, or at least remember in reruns, and I'm a, still a big fan of that show. 
What's his background for those who don't know, and how did Sopranos come about under his watch, or in, or maybe didn't almost come about? What what, what was the road? Yeah, Chase, took? like you said, had written for Rockford Files, for Northern Exposure, for All Fly Away, for some of the better TV shows of the 1970s and 1980s, uh, and into the early 90s. But he was pretty burnt out on the medium. He was sick of network notes. He felt that even the good work he had done was too dumbed down, you know, was too pre-chewed. He, you know, he felt too hemmed in by all these traditions of television. And, you know, and at the same time, he would had this difficult relationship with his mother, and he would always tell people stories about it at parties, and people would laugh. And one day his wife, Denise, said, you should make a show about your mom. And he couldn't think of how to make a show about a screenwriter with a difficult mother interesting. And then one day, uh, you know, someone from his management team said, Paramount wants you to make The Godfather into a TV show. And he very rightly did not want to do that, but I think some, a light bulb went off and he realized, wait a minute, what if I do the show about my mother as a show about a gangster with a difficult mother? And even then, he didn't really want to do it as a show, and he chopped it around to Fox and to CBS, the head of CBS, said, well, we might want to do it, but we don't want him to see a psychiatrist, you know, things like that. And then that was around the time HBO was getting into the series business, and even there, he didn't think they were really going to do it. And his hope was, oh, I'll make a pilot, they'll pass on it, and then I'll you know, find funding to film another hour and I'll take it to a film festival as a movie. He did not want to make a TV show, and instead he made one of the great TV shows and one of the most influential shows ever made. But Paramount came to him, what, in the 90s or in the 80s? Yes, no, so, sometime in the 90s. They came and, and said, and we want a Godfather TV show Yes, based on the Corleone family in, in some form? Or, you know, or it, it could have just been using the name. That sometimes yeah. happens, where it's the name and it's an entirely new you know, set of wise guys. Do you know any history of, with The Godfather being such a hit in the 70s, that there was ever a, a thought then to do an immediate Godfather TV show of any kind? And again, it wouldn't have been HBO back in the 70s. It would have been regular TV. Couldn't have been nearly as violent, I'm sure, or as profane. But... That was never really thought about at the time, do you know, either way? Uh, not that I can recall, yeah. but I also wouldn't be surprised if someone had tried it and it was dismissed. Because, again, before The Sopranos, there was this TV tradition like characters you know, can be edgy, but they ultimately have to be likable. They ultimately have to be good. One of my favorite you know, shows before The Sopranos was NYPD Blue. That's the thing that got me into TV criticism. And the main character there was, you know, as close as you could get. You know, he was a racist and a drunk and foul-mouthed and belligerent and all that. But he was also ultimately a good cop. And one by one, he was less racist and he wasn't drinking and he was nicer to people and all of those things that TV has conditioned us to be prepared for. And then you go and you watch The Sopranos and, you know, Tony's got worse and worse as time went on. Was The Sopranos in the right place at the right time in terms of being the first real TV show on HBO that was... You mentioned Oz, but to, to really be able to utilize the, the lack of limits, the profanity ability, the nudity it could do, and the limits on number of series episodes. How, how unusual, and, and was that something that was fought over with HBO? Did they want more episodes? Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, he told me once, it was kind of an accident. Mm. It was the way that the TV business works it traditionally is you order 13 episodes of a show, right. and then if it's doing well, it's still in production, and you order another nine, and that's how you get the 22-episode season that's still relatively traditional uh. on the broadcast networks. HBO wasn't like producing shows that way. They were going to do it all at once, so they just ordered 13, and it wound up being a good length for them. These days, they only do 10. Because And that's what all these shows do. And now it's the whole binge-watching, where yeah. you do things like, I'm a big Handmaid's Tale fan, although that still comes on regularly, um, House of Cards, 
Although, I don't know if you're a fan of that. I definitely got about three episodes into the last season, and I couldn't watch anymore. It was so bad without Kevin you, Spacey. You made it a lot further than I did, Joe. <laughs> we needed Frank Underwood, or at least a stronger first lady turned president. But that binge-watching element is now standard in a lot of these sites. Um, I think the HBO and Showtime shows still come on premiere once a week, correct? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, there, there's been some experimenting where you see some of the other cable channels Stars, for instance, will occasionally release all the episodes at once on demand, but still air things weekly. So people are trying different models to you know, catch up to Netflix, because it seems like a lot of people do just want to watch the seasons all at once. And with The Sopranos, it became regular reading in, in my house. I'm still a Star Ledger reader. To read, I guess it was first Matt, but then mostly yours, because I caught mostly the last seasons of The Sopranos. And I think you said at another event, Matt would cover The Sopranos for the first three seasons, then you covered the second three. And yeah. how, did, how did you approach coming in to cover this hit show that was very unusual in a way that you had to write about it the day after it aired, but obviously a lot of people didn't watch it till later in the week? And I know you would always put spoiler alert and everything at the top of the column. How did you get involved in starting to cover it, and what was it like for you to approach this? Was it that much different than any other show? It was a strange experience because I've been watching with a fair amount of jealousy as Matt had called dibs on the show at the beginning, and he had this thing that was a huge phenomenon, not only for New Jersey, but for American TV as a whole, and he had exclusive rights to it for a while, because that's just the way our partnership had worked. And then he passed it on to me, and I was both excited but also nervous, because he had written so much about the first three seasons that I worried that there wasn't anything left. And so I had to start covering it in weird ways. I would do interviews with, like, supporting actors Matt hadn't gotten to yet. I would talk to members of the crew. You know, I interviewed the costume designer, the production designer, the location scout, things like that. But mainly I just I did a lot of what he did, which was if there was, if there was a big episode that happened, I would come into the newsroom the next morning and say, hey, Ralphie just got his head cut off. I need 30 inches in tomorrow's paper. And they would give me 30 inches in tomorrow's paper. Those pieces always got the biggest response of anything I did. And that's one of the ways in which I wound up doing more and more recaps, not only of that show, but of a lot of TV. And generally, the recaps weren't really something that was written for other shows because this was such a different kind of a... Or was that usual? Uh, I did not write about it for uh, other shows at the time. Just because, you know, recaps were not really a thing then. There were yeah. uh, a few sites online that did them. Uh, you know, Television for That Pity was on, I think, for most, if not all, of the Sopranos run. But there wasn't a lot of it. And then it became started to become a big thing within the last year or two of the show ending. And now it's become a very commonly accepted uh, form of TV criticism. Do you think, now what brought the show to its end? Was it something Chase decided or the actors were sick of it? Because it could have gone on forever. It would have worn it itself have, out, but perhaps, think, but what, what I, I brought it to the, the story, end? Yeah, the, he told the story as best as he could, mm -hmm. and you know, and we talked about it a lot with him in the interviews we did for the book, where one day Albrecht came to him and said, you know, you have to at a certain point start figuring out how you're going to end the show, mm -hmm. and that's where he started to get the idea that eventually turned into the scene at the ice cream parlor that everybody's still arguing about all these years later. He he had you said I think in another interview he knew how he was going to end it long before it happened and this was the way he wanted it done and was there was that true and if so was there any reason he ever gave about why he well, did it the way no, he did? Well, no, and it was an amazing thing that happened in the interview because we had not we'd been, we did seven interviews with him one for each season and we were holding off on talking about the finale until the last one because we knew that he doesn't like talking about it. And so we figured we would stall as long as possible and hope that an idea came to us. And in kind of classic Sopranos fashion, the confrontation happened before we were ready for it. 
uh, in the sixth interview, we were just talking about the more general idea of preparing to end the show. And he said, well, you know, after Chris told me that, uh, you know, I had that death scene in mind for about two years before we did it. And Matt and I both heard him say the phrase death scene and our antenna went up and Matt called him on it. And Chase realized what he had just said and his eyes narrowed and he, he said a curse word. But then we started talking and what he'd meant by that wasn't the ending that he actually did. It was a different ending where Tony is at war with Johnny Sack and losing badly, and he has to go through the Lincoln Tunnel to grovel at Johnny's feet and plead for peace, and the show would end with him going through the tunnel with a cut to white or a cut to black uh, in a mirror of the way that the show began in the opening credits, with the implication being that he died. And then Shay says, but I changed my mind, and that's what led to the Holston scene, which we talked about for a good 45 minutes without him saying exactly what happened, but talking more about the idea that it's about death and the fragility of mortality. And, and that's what he was trying to get at is whether or not Tony dies in that scene, whether or not Meadow dies, whether or not the audience gets whacked or whatever, life is short and it's out of our control when it comes to an end. And that's what he wanted to make the audience feel. And that's what a lot of people felt. And that's why they were so tense watching Meadow pa parallel park the car and the members only guy go up and go to the bathroom and everything else that happened and why we're still debating it 12 years later. Right. And for those who don't know, you can go on YouTube and look up Prano's final scene. It's all there. Various things are going on while the family's coming together to eat. And as you mentioned, yes, Meadow's out in front. I remember watching this with my wife. We were glued to our TV every week by then, and everyone knew this was going to be the last episode. We followed it through. And I remember before that, he has a big blow-up scene with uh, Uncle Junior, kind of his final goodbye to Junior. And then we go to Holston's, and we had heard, all of us in New Jersey, through your reporting and others, that the last scene would be at Holston's, which I had never been to and, of course, had to visit. And there's all this activity going on around them, as you mentioned, the man comes in with a members-only jacket. And the big thing, though, is Meadows parking the car and takes her time to get in. And as she runs in, then it cuts to Tony and it goes to black. An ending I did not like because, like a lot of people, I invest myself in a show and I like to see an ending. I was a big Dallas fan. And we had some important endings in that show. Of course, the Who Shot JR episode was a big revelation. And then the way it ended, although it had its own questionable ending of the series, because there's a scene where JR is fires a shot, and you don't know if he's killed himself or shot at a mirror for those who knew that show. Although it was later revealed in the Dallas reboot, which was somewhat interesting. I don't know if you were a Dallas fan or not. But at the end of that, he kills himself, which I thought was kind of a weak JR death. But at least it was a it was a finality. But as you mentioned, I think in other interviews and in the book, the idea that Chase kind of wanted to keep it sort of a mystery, and that sort of helps it endure a little. What do you think went into that, and what has the effect been? Have you heard most people like it or don't like it, or is it really split? It's been really fascinating doing interviews to promote the book, because a lot of them are with people I've talked about you know, I've talked to over the years, you know, either as the interviewer or as the interviewee. And, you know, some people like really hated the ending the first time I talked to them about it 10 or 12 years ago, and they've come around. And not everybody has, but I feel like what Chase was going for was something he talked about a lot with us over the years and in these interviews for the book is he just feels like TV tries to answer too many questions for you and doesn't let you work through it yourself. And he'd always enjoyed, you know, these very art house European films that he watched in the 60s, like Blow Up. He said one of his favorite things is I would go to a movie with Denise and I would come out and I would say, what happened? And I loved that feeling. And I think that's part of what he was trying to do with not only the ending, but some other things like where the Russian went, 
what happened to Furia, what happened to Melfi's attacker, etc. There's a lot of unresolved issues throughout the run of The Sopranos because he didn't like to wrap things up neatly in a bow, and he wanted to withhold things from the audience because he felt it was good for them, even if they didn't always enjoy it. Now, you use the term, the audience was whacked, or was the audience whacked? What do you mean by that? Just that we were uh, Some people, talk, including Matt, have talked about the idea that, like, if you break down the way the point-of-view shots are done, mm. you know, the very last scene is not Tony's point-of-view because he's looking at the camera. Right. It's our point-of-view, and it cuts to black. And if you're going along with what Bobby Bacala says... Earlier in that season, you know, I bet you don't even hear it when it happens. Right. You know, it could be implied that this is Chase whacking the audience and saying, you know, all right, you guys are done. You don't get to see any more of this story. And that's kind of an interesting one. Although another yeah, that's idea... One of, one of many theories that's arisen over the years. When the last scene was coming together, my wife and I were thinking, what if they just... Because there were several episodes of the show that ended with the family just together and the f- camera kind of pulled away and went to faded to black, where they're just a family together. I thought it would be kind of an interesting, although maybe more criticized idea, to just have them eating dinner, camera pans away, and there's no big ending. They just go on. That probably would have brought even more criticism in some ways. I think it would have, it would have brought less than this. You know, this was just, I don't know if it was designed to make people mad, but or intended to make people mad, but it made people mad. Well, of course, we're talking to Alan Seppenwall, co-author of The Soprano Sessions, and he, chief TV critic, at Rolling Stone magazine and former critic for the Star Ledger TV critic. Now, are you a Jersey boy as well? And how was it to cover this as a Jersey TV critic at the paper that Tony Soprano read? I grew up in Pinebrook, New Jersey, which is a couple of towns over from where Tony lived and from where Chase grew up. I grew up as a Star Ledger reader myself, reading Jerry Krupnik's TV column. As a kid, I got to work with Jerry for a couple of years at the start of my career and at the end of his, which was pretty great. And it was really fascinating because I knew all of these places that they went to and that they referenced. You know, when Vito runs away to New Hampshire in season six, they filmed that on the main street in Boonton. And I'd spent a lot of my childhood, you know, shopping there and eating at that diner where the Johnny Cakes, when Tony Blundetto tries to open the massage parlor uh, in a strip mall in West Caldwell. The location was my favorite bookstore from when I was a kid that had since gone out of business. You know, just all of that. It was like they had put my world up on the screen and then twisted it around because it was being seen through the eyes of these just awful, you know, sociopaths and narcissists. Yeah, and a great thing for us as Jersey people to watch the show is it really was authentic. They mentioned places. First of all, Tony reading the Star Ledger was no no Hollywood or New York based director would have done that. They would have had him reading the Daily News or the New York Times or something or some made up paper. But the fact that he read the Star Ledger, which is a really top paper and and a major market paper, it's not well known outside of New Jersey unless you know the news business. And I always thought that was very authentic. And it was interesting. They would always throw out things like Fridley Heisen Avenue in Newark. I mean, no one can even pronounce that name here in New Jersey, but it's a very prominent name. People know where that is. I remember Pal's Cabin was mentioned. That was a really famous restaurant, as you know, in West Orange. It's no longer there. And I live in Maplewood, which is next to Milburn, where the Paper Mill Playhouse is. And I think either AJ or Meadow is mentioned to have an internship there. So, and yeah, sure Meadow has have... an internship there, and she never goes. Of course. Yeah, even after they buy her a car. But as you probably know many more of them than I do, the references to very Jersey-like things that yeah. go, get away from the stereotypes of us, but also show that they know where they're, they're talking from. I remember watching the streets of San Francisco in reruns after having lived there, and I could tell, I could notice places where they actually shot. They'd say they were on 24th Street, which is a semi-major street there, and you could see in the shot that they were actually on that street or on 
and not at you know the Transamerica building or on a cable car where all the San Francisco stereotypical places are, but in real neighborhoods. And New Jersey with the Sopranos did even more of that, which I thought added to the authenticity. But did people outside New Jersey appreciate that or did it have to go beyond that? There's a saying that I hear sometimes in the TV business, which is you want to make the universal specific and you want to make the specific universal. And so even if you were not from New Jersey, even if you didn't know West Caldwell from, you know, you know, West Manhattan or whatever, you could tell that this was a real place. It mm-hmm. felt real. There was an authenticity to it, like you talked about, that I heard people from all other parts of the country recognizing. And there were things about the relationships between the characters, even though most of them were either in the mob or related to somebody in the mob, that felt universal. So it kind of, it was able to break down those barriers so that if you were living, you know, out in Peoria or San Francisco or wherever, you could find something that either you could recognize from your own life, or you could at least recognize as a part of someone's real life. And that has very sort of big value in a serious drama like this. Now, you talked in another conversation about that being very important to Chase, to make this a New Jersey-based show, which could have easily been a New York show or Chicago or some other major city. What, what do you know from what he talked about why it was important to have it based there? Because he was from New Jersey. This, you know, he'd written a couple of Rockford Files episodes about Jersey wise guys, you know, getting into trouble with Jim Rockford, um, you know, and there's some elements of those episodes that he wound up repurposing in The Sopranos years later without even remembering he had done it. There had been all these New York wise guy stories. There had never been this. And he'd grown up not part of the mob, but like knowing mob wise sure. guys and knowing stories of them and hearing them and many of which he incorporated into the show. But I think it's also important because there's a fundamental inferiority complex to Tony Soprano. And part of that is, as he says in the first episode to Dr. Melfi, I feel like I came in at the end, the good times are over. So he missed the glory days of the mafia, but he also lives on the wrong side of the river. He, he will never be as cool as Johnny Sack or Carmine Lupertazzi or any of these other guys. And he'll never be as cool as the wise guys in the movies that he and Christopher are always watching because he's the, you know, the strip mall Don. He's not you know, the dawn of Manhattan or Brooklyn or anything else. So that's a key part of his story as well, even though it's usually not stated as such. Now, how was the casting done? Now, Gandolfini had been in a few things before Sopranos. He was generally an unknown to, to mainstream people. Only uh, Dr. Melfi, Lorraine Bracco had been in Goodfellas and some other things. Was there a, a push by Chase to have lesser-known names and get the right people, or was that something that was just sort of it, happened? It varied. I mean, at one point when he was developing it at Fox, Fox tried to have him you know, put Anthony LaPaglia in it, and it didn't sound like that would have been a good marriage on, on top of the issues with Fox. I think Ray Liotta was talked to at one point, which would have been the most Goodfellas thing at all. Sure. And ultimately, the final three were Gandolfini, who obviously got the job, Steve Van Zant, you know, because Chase originally conceived of the show as more of a straight comedy, uh, mm. and he thought Van Zant would be really funny in it, and when he didn't hire him for that, he created Silvio Dante for him to play, and Michael Rispoli, who wound up playing Jackie April Sr., the acting head of the family for the first few episodes of the show. And, you know, none of them are super well-known. Van Zant was the most famous one, but he's famous for being Springsteen's guitar player. So that still would have been an out-of-the-box choice. And I think casting an unknown had this huge value because for most of the audience, Gandolfini was Tony Soprano and vice versa. You don't watch it and say, you know, oh, Anthony LaPaglia wouldn't do this, or, you know, famous actor X wouldn't do this. It's just, he was Tony, Tony did this, Therefore, Tony would do this. 
And of course, James Gandolfini, also a Jersey boy, Rutgers graduate, and from, I don't know what town is he from in New Jersey, but I know he's from here. Does that? He's from New Jersey, and the funny thing about the Rutgers is our editor at the Star-Ledger, when Matt and I both started on the TV beat, Mark Diano, went to Rutgers with Jim. Oh, I didn't know that. No, 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 it it gets better, it gets better. You know that dent that Jim had in his forehead, that Ah. very characteristic? Mark put it there. Uh Uh-oh. Has that that been confirmed by Gandolfini, or is Mark trying to... uh... No, Mark, Mark and Jim up. have both told this story Excellent. at various points. They they were horsing around in the dorm, and they were playing some kind of game with dart guns. And Jim was chasing Mark around, and Mark was hiding behind a door. And he could see Jim approaching, and he slammed the door in his face. And he gave him, like, a huge gash that required Mark to take him to the emergency room to get stitches. And for years after, he would joke, Jim owes me a cut of his salary because, like, I gave him character. He had a point, whether it was deserved or not, I'm sure. Uh, It's funny, his Rutgers connection, I think, hit the height when, I don't know what year it was, a few years ago, when Rutgers football was on a good run for a couple years. They were at the Fiesta Bowl, and I remember them showing Jim Gandolfini on the sidelines, walking across the field, and that was getting as much attention as anyone in the football game. I think he even did a promotional ad for Rutgers football. There's a, I don't know if this is online somewhere, but I think it's him and Greg Schiano are sitting yeah. somewhere, and someone comes up and says, hey, I love your program, and he's talking to Schiano, the coach of Rutgers, not to Gandolfini, and Gandolfini says to him, oh, I can't take you anywhere, kind of, kind of teasing him about he's the famous one now and uh, Gandolfini isn't. And he was a very proud Jersey guy, it looks like, a real proud Rutgers guy. It really was. And it was, you know, he obviously the role was difficult for him. And, you know, he would, you know, try to quit the show sometimes and run away. And it was, he couldn't turn it on and off the way Edie Falco could. But also, like, he was a really warm hearted and generous guy who, you know, was very true to his roots and almost pathologically humble. Like, he hated doing interviews and talking about himself, not because he was smug, but just because he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't think the world cared about James Gandolfini, the person, and why would anybody want to talk about that? Matt did one of the few in- the solo interviews he ever gave, and it's reprinted in the book. Excellent. And Jim Jim tried to back out of that. Like, he called Matt's house and talked to his wife for 20 minutes and said, can you please tell your ask your husband not to interview me? And why was that? He just wanted to keep private or just didn't think yeah, he, he was, deserved Yeah, he was it? just shy. He just yeah. didn't, like, I encountered a lot of actors who don't like talking to the press and it's snobbery or Mm -hmm. you know other things for him i think it was genuinely just some level of social anxiety it came from a sincere place i was at an event once an awards dinner for tv critics and nobody had told uh, gandolfini that it was a working press event that he might get interviewed and he was standing at the bar and suddenly a bunch of critics noticed him and the next thing you know he's got 30 tape recorders you know pointed in his face and he looked like he wanted to chew his arm off to get out of there. Well, I know you have a certain limited amount of time. We've been talking to Alan Sepinwall, the Soprano Sessions co-author. Let me ask one other quick thing. What is it about the show that people might not know? What's sort of some some tidbit or fact you've, you've picked up in your time doing the book and reviewing it that may be interesting to people, either how... Uh, well, here's a funny one. Remember Please. Ralphie Cipperetto, the character that oh. Joe Pantoliano played? Yes, and then very, okay. very uh, hateful. Joey Pants was not the original Ralphie. There's another oh. actor. There's another actor named Robert Fanaro who wound up playing a different role in the show. Eugene Ponacorvo, the guy in the members-only jacket who hangs himself at the start of season six. They hired him to play Ralphie because he was an old friend of Gandolfini's, and Gandolfini suggested him. And like within a few days or something, they realized it was not a good fit. 
and they had to create a new character for him, and they called in Pantoliano, uh, and he wound up playing it for a season and a half very memorably and won an Emmy. And is there anything that was too violent or too strong or too offensive that the show was considering that was even too much for this show to be done, or was it pretty much whatever they came up with was not too strong to avoid? Pretty much whatever they came up with, yeah. although it's interesting when they talked about what happens to Adriana, Oh, where it happens scary. off, yeah. when it happens and it happens off camera, right? And that wound up causing them a lot of grief because the audience would say, "Oh, well, we it didn't happen on camera. Maybe she got away," and that that became a headache for them. And what Chase said is like he realized subconsciously he just didn't want to see it. Like yeah. he knew it had to happen for the story, but he didn't want to see it. And so he arranged for them to film it in a way where you don't. Yeah, that I think added to the effect because the last memory you have of her is crying and screaming and "Help me! Don't hurt me!" and it's almost a better effect that, you know, it's off camera and you just hear, and there's plenty of examples of that in movies and TV that might even be more effective because, but it was basically he didn't want to see her get killed in, in a bloody mess that she probably would have been? Yes. Excellent. He, li- he liked the character too much and he, he couldn't get her out of the fix he had put her in, but he could at least do that. Did Chase have any regrets about plot lines or anything he had done in the show? Uh, like he, he regretted after Nancy Marchand died, and they did the episode of Olivia passing away. They did a scene where they like basically you know did a digital head swap, and they took footage of her from earlier in the series and you know pasted it onto another actress's head, so it would seem like Tony was having one last conversation with his mom, and it looked terrible. And he said, like in hindsight, I shouldn't have done that. That was kind of his shark from Jaws. That was didn't look all that real in some scenes. Perhaps she has a different hairstyle in every single shot. That doesn't go over. But again, I think it's forgiven by by most Sopranos fans. Now we have the Sopranos prequel coming up with James Gandolfini's son playing the young Tony. What do you know or expect from that, or is it not going to be the same? On the one hand, I think it's wonderful that Michael is getting to step into his father's footsteps like this. Uh, On the other, everything we'd heard is that this movie is going to be set in 1967, and we've seen Tony in 1967, he's a little kid. And Michael Gandolfini is 19 and looks older than that. So my guess is the movie is probably going to you know, bounce around in time a little bit and we'll get to see young adult Tony at some point. But Chase wouldn't do this if he didn't think it was a good idea and he wasn't excited about it because he doesn't need the money and he doesn't need the attention. And this is the greatest thing he's ever done. And I don't think he would want to taint it with some you know, quick cash and idea. It doesn't mean it's going to be good, but I'm hopeful. Excellent. Well, again, we've been talking to Alan Sepinwall, co-author of The Soprano Sessions, chief TV critic at Rolling Stone and, of course, former Star Ledger critic. Anything else you want to add to what people should know about the book? And again, it's not just the episode by episode, which is plenty, but as you mentioned, this lengthy David Chase interviews, and as you said, lengthy interview with James Gandolfini that was done years ago before his death. But anything else people should know? There's plenty here to chew on with what we have, but we don't want to leave anything The, the one thing I would say is the book sold out the initial print run. I think some stores were not necessarily prepared for the demand of it. The book is now in the process of being restocked. We're, we're talking about this on Thursday. And by early next week, it should be everywhere. So if you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever, and they say we don't have it and we're not sure when we're going to get it, they're going to have it very soon. So you could put in a pre-order now and you will get it fairly quickly. So if anyone thinks that the uh, shine has worn off The Sopranos uh, 20 years after the first show, not happening. More popular than ever. And the, the book sales can only prove that. Thanks again, Alan, very much for talking to us. We'll probably bother you again on some other topic, or maybe this one again. Sopranos is not going away anytime soon. Thank you so much for My spending pleasure, your time. My pleasure, Joe. You take care. Be well.
And that's it for this week's edition of the Retro Room. We want to thank Alan Steppenwall of Rolling Stone and formerly of the Star Ledger, also co-author, of course, of The Sopranos Sessions. And of course, my book is out, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. It's out of Willow Street Press, available at Amazon.com or wherever good books are sold. And always want to thank our sponsor, Jiminy's, Jiminy's Dog Treats which are hypoallergenic, humane, nutritious, and delicious, and fight climate change. Reduce your carbon power with Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com. That's J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next time, and have a great day. Music